Isaiah chapter 57. If you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of the scripture and we'll get into the scripture tonight. I'm going to begin by reading one verse, which will be the verse that contains really the primary thing we want to focus on tonight. But then we're going to back up and look at a number of passages, uh, including some more from the 57th chapter. But let's look at verse 15 and we'll just start there. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now Israel, as you know, if you know much about the Bible, was... Uh, it, and always, really, almost always, in a state of needing to be revived. They had this tendency, like sometimes we do, you know, to get really fired up for a while and then get kind of negligent for a while. And, and we see that throughout their, their history. Um, but we also see that same thing about the need for revival in the New Testament, individuals and churches. Notice it says in verse 15... To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So we're going to look at this passage together and think about personal revival. Let's pray, okay? Our fathers, we pray tonight, we thank you, first of all, for our missionaries that are faithfully serving you in so many different places in the world. Missionaries that we know and appreciate and respect and love and that we as a church have been able to partner with. We thank you for each one of them. We pray for them. We pray especially for the Gossmeyer family. We ask you, Lord, that you'd strengthen them and encourage them, and we know that they're in a place that uh, desperately needs revival, a place, the United Kingdom, that has seen great moves of God in the past, but have as a nation anyway, as the most part, numerous countries have turned away from you. So bless them, encourage them, give them fruit for their labor. Lord, I'm, I'm excited that they're seeing progress in the work and we pray you'd continue to bless them. We pray that you'd bless tonight as we study your word. Lord, we pray that you just have, help us to have open, receptive hearts and that God just speak to us and work in our hearts. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So for, let's just think first of all about what we're reading here in the book of Isaiah. We'll make an application for ourselves. But this is a message really from God through the prophet Isaiah concerning their relationship with God. Now if you back up just to the first part, I just want to point out a few verses that kind of help us appreciate um, what's taking place. In verse 1, for instance, of chapter 57 we see some things about the condition of the people. It says, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away. In verse 3, he basically refers to what they are doing as, as spiritual apostasy, adultery, spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness, verse 3. 
But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. This is strong language. Last part of verse 4. Are you not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? Verse 5, he says, Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree. The Old Testament often uses that phrase, under every green tree, because God intended for them to worship in a specific place, not anywhere they took a liking to. And yet they had this tendency, like they worshiped idols and they worshiped in many places. And then he says in verse 5, just a, such a tragic uh, testimony, slaying the children in the valleys and under the cliffs of the rocks. One of the Canaanite gods was Molech. And one of the things that they were notorious for was offering their own children in sacrifices to their false idols. And here God's people are being drawn into that very same thing. And so this is the context of, verse, of chapter 57. This is what's taking place. And, and God is using Isaiah to rebuke them for their, for their idolatry. Verse 13, let's just follow, uh, skip over there to verse 13. It says, when thou criest, when you cry out, let thy companies deliver thee. In other words, when you cry out, just let your false gods and, and those who associate with them deliver thee. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. So you can cry out to your false gods and they won't help. But then in verse 13, there's a distinct uh, transition. Look where he says, but, in verse 13. But he that putteth his trust in me. In contrast to all this idol worship and trusting in false gods, but he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and shall say, he that trusts in me, and he'll say this, cast you up, cast you up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. In other words, remove everything that stands in the way of God's people. So God's rebuking them for their False worship, he's rebuking them for their lack of devotion to him and their devotion to false gods and false idols. And with that is a, a stage, a platform, verse 15, let's read this again. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So what he's telling them is all these other ways of worship, all these other directions you can go are not going to fulfill you. But he says those that trust in me are going to experience my blessing. And when, of course when we read this, we see that it pertains to Israel. It's pertaining to their their time of disobedient to God. But it's not just pertains to Israel because it's really a message about God. It's a message about God's character. When he says in verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. It's just a reminder about how God is and who God is. God is not who we imagine him to be. God is who he is is and who he declares to be and in this context we have really a great promise of God's mercy 
in the last part of verse 57, and that is that he could revive people. He could revive people who've gotten away from him. He can revive people who've turned against him. And it's a message about those he revives. And so let's just look at this verse 15, thinking not only about the Jewish people, but about ourselves. And remember, just to remember some, a couple of things. The first one is this. He's, notice where revival comes from. Look at verse 15. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So who is it that revives people? It's God that does that. I mean, we could schedule a meeting and say we're going to have a revival meeting and revival meetings are good and preaching is good and singing is good and praying is good and fellowship is good. But none of us can really revive the heart of another person. As a matter of fact, we can't even revive our own heart. And there's a lot in this passage about revival that I think is important. But, but anyway, God, it's God that revives hearts. And so we ought to remember that. God's the one that does the reviving. And also, where does revival take place? Revival does not really take place in our emotions. We may, it's not about a feeling there are two words in this passage that talk about where revival takes place. And one of them, if you look in verse 15, it says, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Revival takes place in a person's spirit and it takes place in a person's heart. I've said this many times and I really believe it's true. We can change things that we want to, they think, we think need to be changed in our behavior and we ought to. Like if we say, well, I just need to be praying more than we ought to. If we say, well, I need to forgive a certain person, we ought to. If we, if we would say, well, I need to read my Bible more than we ought to. If I ought to be more faithful in church, then we ought to. But all those things doesn't necessarily bring revival. Revival happens inside of us. Revival happens in our spirit. By the way, if you're not saved, you can't be revived because you don't have life. You, you know, when a person gets saved, they're born again, and they're given new life. And a person that's saved doesn't ever need to be saved again. We're eternally saved. But sometimes the life that we have needs to be rekindled. And that takes place in our spirit. That takes place in our heart. And so it's a heart matter. And, and God can bring great revival to people's hearts. You know, if you were to, maybe you've done this. We've, we've seen it happen in our house. You, we have pl plants inside our house, and we leave town for a couple of weeks, and they're without water, and you get back, and you can tell by looking at them. They're sort of shriveled up and dry. They need, and yet you put some water in them, pour some water on them, and, and uh, before long, they start perking up and refreshing, and you see the same thing in your garden. I Driving home from the office uh, today, I saw people watering their grass. They don't normally do that because most of us don't really want our grass to grow too much. But, but they're doing that to try to keep it alive. They're trying to revive it. Well, the same thing happens in people, you know, that we need renewal every once in a while. We need spiritual revival. And what it does, it, it doesn't just make us better Bible students. It, makes, it restores vitality and spiritual life. To us, It renews our love for God. It renews our love for the things of God, our love for others, our love for the Bible. You know, God intends for his people, not, you know, we, we make a, a, a strong 
declaration that there's a world of difference between just being religious and being a, a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian. And religion is just something we do. So a lot of people are religious in their own way and may not even have life. But it's not, but we don't just go through the motions. We're not robots. We ought to have a love for God, a love for the things of God, a love for the Word of God, a desire to grow in grace. And so where does this revival take place? It takes place in a person's heart. And it comes from God. And if you've ever found yourself, and most of us, I think, who've been saved any length of time, you found yourself in a place where you, I'm not talking about doubting your salvation, but you just realize, you know, I just really need for God to do something in my heart. I need revival in my heart. I don't have the love that I used to have that I once had for the things of God. And you can't make that happen. God, but God can do that. God can revive our hearts. You know, and if you look in any place in the Bible where it talks about that, I was thinking about um, the book of Hosea. And Hosea had a similar message, but this is what Hosea said, break up the fallow ground and sow to yourselves in righteousness. And that's talking about the breaking up the ground of your heart that needs to be broken up. And that's the same thing we see in the parable of the sower. When Jesus Jesus gave us this great parable about someone who sowed seed and some of them fell by the wayside and the fowls of the air snatched them up and some fell on rocky soil and they sprung up temporarily but then it just faded away and they went back to the way they were. And some fell among thorns and Jesus said that is a parable about the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And, and the seed is the word of God. It falls among thorns and it doesn't produce any fruit. It chokes it out. But then he says, he talks about this good seed that fell on a prepared heart, good soil. Luke calls it an honest heart, an honest and good heart. And when that seed falls on the heart that's prepared, it brings forth fruit. And that's really what revival is about. And what is, so we're talking about the, the condition of the heart. And you say, well, how could, we, how could we expect for God to do a work in our hearts that was meaningful and refreshing spiritually? And I think the main thing we can do is look at that condition of our heart. Ask and prepare the heart for the seed of the word of God. Revival is the work of God in a believer's heart. Now that's what Israel needed, and that's what we need. And the two words I want to draw attention to in verse 15, not only the two words about the, the place of revival, the spirit and the heart, but the two words that describe, according to God's own word, that describe the heart that God revives. In verse 15 it says, I dwell God is speaking, I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now those two words describe contrite and humble. Those two words describe the heart that God revives. The humble heart and the contrite heart. We're going to talk a little bit tonight about what those two things mean. But notice he didn't say, I revive the person who 
knows the most Bible or I revive the person who's most faithful in church or I revive the person who spends the most hours working at church and all those things are well and good, but that's not who he revives. He revives the heart of the humble and he revives the heart of the contrite. And we know what humility is. Humility basically is the, the opposite of pride. It means to be, the word means to be low, not be low, B-E-L-O-W, but to be, be low, L-O-W, to be low and, and as opposed to being lifted up. The language is used in the Old Testament. I think we heard a message about uh, Hezekiah and Manasseh Sunday morning, but one of the things it said about King Hezekiah was his heart was lifted up. It's what it said about King Uzziah. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. But when he, was, when he began to prosper, his heart was lifted up. That means he became prideful. He became self-reliant. And that's the opposite of what humility is. As I was thinking about this message today, I was thinking about a conversation I had. It's been years ago with a man that I've really only had one lengthy conversation with, and I haven't been in his presence since then but he he was a man that was fairly well known and I met him at a place and we talked together and uh, talked about spiritual things and and um, so after that I sent him an email some days after that and just said it was good to meet you appreciate what you're doing whatever and uh, he, he sent me back an email and he said a few words then he said this stay low and that's the interesting thing that's an interesting word to say to somebody when they walk away stay low but you know what he meant? He meant what this is. Stay low. Don't let yourself be lifted up. Who does God, what heart does God revive? It doesn't say you have to be a certain age. But it does say this, you have to, you have to have, be humble. God revives the heart of the humble. And this is really one of the great temptations in life. Is to be prideful. And prideful is not just thinking that I'm really something. Prideful is to think that I'm anything. Prideful is to, to go through life thinking I can just make my own decisions and God's going to bless it and I can decide for myself. You know what that is? That's just pride. God didn't want us to make all our own. He wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. He wants to help us. So... There is no, look what it, just think about that as we look at this verse again, verse 15. He says, for, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. You know, there is no, there's no pride in the presence of God. He dwells with those that are humble. That's what got Lucifer kicked out of heaven was his pride. He just thought he was something special. So what, what kind of God, heart is God looking for? He's looking for a humble heart, a humble spirit. And then look at, again in verse 15, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now what does that word contrite mean? You're probably not as familiar with it. Is you are humble, but contrition or being contrite means really to be broken, to be crushed. It means that a person is, is helpless. They're, they're destitute. They're desperate. 
And there are many other verses in the Bible that talk about this. We're going to keep coming back to Isaiah 57. But look with me to Psalm for just a moment. A couple of places in Psalm. One Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And verse 18. Psalm 34 and verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Isn't that interesting? The word nigh means near. God is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Now, I, th I, think I'm, I think I'm accurate in saying this. Probably none of us really want to be broken, right? We don't like that idea of being contrite, contrition, crushed, broken. But you know what it says? That God, God will save those that are contrite. God is close to those that are broken. You're in Psalm, but go uh, to the right from there a little bit to Psalm 51. And the whole, this whole psalm is really about brokenness. It's David's brokenness. And we're just going to look at one verse. But Psalm 51, this was after David committed his horrible sin with Bathsheba and then had Uriah killed. Just horrific. But it's a psalm that I never read without appreciating his repentance, his heart of repentance. But look with me, if you would, please, in verse 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's interesting. When a person is just broken before God, God will not despise that. Isn't that amazing? Now, the really good thing about that is anybody here, any one of us could comply with God's requirements. He revives the heart of the humble. My flesh works against humility. You know, our flesh wants to promote ourselves and put our will first and be stubborn, self-willed. That's all the work of the flesh. And you know what? We can do that if we want to. People did it. Saul, King Saul did it. Dave, um, Lucifer did it. I mean, lots of people do. You can do that, but you know what? You won't really have God's blessing in your life like you, like you would want to. God blesses humility. And it's these two characteristics that God is looking for. Contrition about our sin especially. Contrition is being broken. That's what David was when he records this Psalm 51. He was broken about what he had done. That's what, that's what Peter was when he had denied the Lord three times. And when he saw the Lord, he went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. You know, I've, I'm not proud to say this, but I know that I've, I've denied the Lord before. And I may have confessed it and said, Lord, I'm sorry, but... We don't usually weep bitterly. 
because we've made a mistake, because we've sinned. We don't usually weep bitterly. But you know what that is? That's brokenness. That's contrition. That's, that's looking at our sin in a different way. So these two characteristics are what God is looking for. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. And, but let's not just stop at Isaiah 57. Let's look a further over to Isaiah 66. Let's, let's just, you know, if God says something one time, it's powerful. If he says it two times, it just adds more, more power to it. If he says it three times, but here we see even another example in Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me and where is the place of my rest? God is just simply declaring that he is eternal. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Verse 2, for all these things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God if, you, if a person just says, well, I just really want, I want God's attention. I want God to work in my life. It's not about how, we can't sell God on how worthy we are. We can't sell God on how much he, no, the, the person that God cannot look away from, the person that God cannot deny is a person that's broken before God. A person that's humble before God. God doesn't fellowship with the stubborn. God doesn't fellowship with the proud. God doesn't fellowship with the willful. As I was thinking about this today, um, I thought about two people in the Bible. One of them was mentioned Sunday morning in Sunday school. I'm going to go to a couple other passages. I'd like for you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 21. And I just want to use this as an example of how God responds to humility and brokenness. 1 Kings chapter 21. And this is about King Ahab. And when a person hears King Ahab, they automatically think of one of the most wicked men that ever lived. And his wickedness was probably only exceeded by his wife Jezebel. So what does the Bible say about Ahab? Look in... Look in 1 Kings 21 and verse 25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. He was a wicked man, but he had a wicked, he had a wickeder wife. And she stirred his heart up in his rebellion. Verse 26, and he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words. Now the words that Ahab heard are really found earlier in the chapter. And these were the words that were given to him uh, from Elijah the prophet. 
And basically he said, he just, he pronounced judgment on Ahab. And we could look at him if you want to, but just take my word for it. Well, just look in 1, uh, verse 23. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. He that, the God, Elijah just said, it's, it's, your time's up for you, Ahab. God's going to judge your wickedness. He's going to judge the wickedness of your wife. So verse 27 says about this wicked Ahab. And it came to pass when Ahab heard these words, heard those words, that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly, which means basically humbly, softly. His pride is gone. He's a broken man. And look in verse 28. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, this is what God said to Elijah, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. I take the time to look at that because here's the most wicked, one of the most wicked men that ever lived. And his judgment has been pronounced upon him And when the judgment was pronounced upon him in humility and brokenness, he begged for mercy. And what did God do? God showed him mercy. Isn't that an amazing thing? I wouldn't have done that. God showed him mercy. I'm going to give you one other example of that. Uh, Go with me, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. This is about Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Manasseh was a good king. We heard this in Sunday school Sunday morning. Manasseh was, uh, Hezekiah was a good king. Manasseh was not. 2 Chronicles 33. And and all this first part of the chapter, chapter 33, was just about Manasseh's wickedness. Look in, verse, look in verse 9, 2 Chronicles 33, 9. So Manasseh made Judah, that's God's people, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, to err. And to, notice this, and to do worse than the heathen. Here's a king, a descendant of Hezekiah, King Manasseh, who caused God's people to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And that's pretty serious stuff. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. They would not turn to God. They would not. And verse 11, God brought judgment upon them. But look in verse 12. And when he, talking about Manasseh, was in affliction... He besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him, prayed to God, this wicked Manasseh, and he was entreated of him. God was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom, 
Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. And if to read the rest of this, look in verse 15. He took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars he had built. Verse 16, he repaired the altar of the Lord. Now, again, here's another example of someone that was not just a bad person, not just a wicked person, not just an evil person, but a person who the Bible says caused God's people to become even more evil than the heathen were. And yet, when he understood the judgment that was coming to him, he repented. And God worked in his life. That's an amazing thing to me. Here's, here's one of the lessons I get out of this. Keep in mind, what, what, what heart does God revive? It's the heart of the humble. The heart of the contrite ones. You know, there's something worse than sinning. And this is what it is. Not being sorrowful when we sin. Not being, having any remorse. And that's any sin. Whether it's the sin of bitterness, the sin of evil speaking, the sin of lust, the sin of greed. Whatever it is, the, the, any form of disobedience, when we sin and we just keep on going on like it's nothing, that's horrible. You know, no wonder there's no revival. Where's the brokenness? That's what God's looking for. God's looking for humility. God's looking for brokenness. And wouldn't it be a horrible testimony if someone as evil as Ahab and someone as wicked as Manasseh got God's attention more than we would get God's attention. You say, that's not possible. It is possible. It is possible. What heart does God revive? The humble and the contrite ones. You know, we should all be willing to see where we're wrong. And I'll be the first to admit, and I, you know, I won't, you, you have to, own up to what you want to own up to. But it's not always to recognize, easy to recognize when we're wrong. And that's easy to recognize when other people are wrong. But it's not always easy to recognize when we're wrong. When our attitude's wrong. When our obedience is not what it should be. So it's a good thing to recognize when you're wrong. But something's even more rare than someone being willing to see where they're wrong. And that's the feel about their sin the way we ought to feel about it. And I'm not saying that we ought to, you know, crawl on our knees through glass to show our contrition to God. I'm just saying in our heart, God's looking for humility and contrition. That's what God's looking for. A, a sense of brokenness. You say, well, that's just the Old Testament. I'll tell you, let's go to one New Testament passage and we'll wrap this up. Go to James for a moment. The book of James, right after the book of Hebrews, the book of James, and let's, let's go to chapter 4 and just read a few verses. James chapter 4, let's, let's just begin reading in verse 8. Draw nigh to God, 
Draw close to God, near to God. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh, nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. That's an interesting passage of scripture. You know, I like to be happy. I like to laugh. Don't you? I just like it. And um, I like to laugh in church. I like to come to church. I think, I, think it's, I think we ought to rejoice in the Lord. The Bible tells us that. We ought to rejoice in the Lord. We ought to come before God's presence with rejoicing. Please hear me. That's all true and right. But there's a time, according to what this says, when we, our laughter should be turned into mourning. Why? Why should we be unhappy? About the very thing that God was saying. Because, of, because we're, we see ourselves. God is high and holy and lifted up and exalted. And we see ourselves. We see ourselves as we really are before a holy God. And who does God let come nigh unto him? Who does God fellowship with? Who does God dwell with? Those who have a humble spirit, a humble heart, and those who are given to brokenness and contrition. And I think if we would really be honest sometimes, we can go for days, maybe even weeks, maybe even months, and never really grieve over sin. And I don't think we, you know, God has forgiven us of our sins. We thank God for his forgiveness. We thank God for his mercy. But this book of James was written to believers. You say, well, I'm saved. I don't ever have to be sorry for my sin. James said sometimes we need to turn our rejoicing, turn our laughter into mourning and our joy to heaviness. Why? Because God wants us to take our sin seriously. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time sitting around just dwelling on figuring out how I, I know I must have sin somewhere. Surely if I think long enough, I can figure out some sin in my life. I don't think most of us need to do that. I think we pretty well can see sometimes. But you know what? The problem is not, first of all, we can't see it sometimes. We're so blinded, we can't even see where we're wrong. But, we're, but if we look into the Word of God, He can show us where we're wrong. But even if we see we're wrong, we're not really too sorrowful about it. And I'm just presenting my case tonight. I believe it's God's case that if we want our fellowship with God to be better, we have to make these things a priority in our hearts. Humility and, and contrition. Humble and a sense of brokenness. You know... Despite what children may think, a Band-Aid cannot heal a wound. They may think it does, but it really doesn't. And putting a Band-Aid on spiritual problems doesn't heal them. Real healing comes when we're honest and confess it to God. Even if, maybe even need to confess it to somebody else. If we've wronged somebody else. And just putting 
You know, just putting a spiritual band-aid on problems just sort of masks the problems. You know where spiritual healing really comes from? It comes from repentance. It comes from humility and brokenness. Just being transparent and honest and sincere before God. You know, obviously I'm preaching this because we're moving into a revival meeting on Sunday. And I just want us to understand where revival comes from. It comes from God. And revival is not hard for God, right? It's not hard for God. God, God revives people's hearts. And if, you, if we got the idea that, man, God is just really, really running out of this revival power. I'm telling you, God's got all the power there is. You know what the hard thing is? Is for us to get our hearts where we need to be for God to revive us. God doesn't bless self-satisfaction. God doesn't bless an attitude that just says, you know, I'm, I don't care what anybody says. I'm living the way I want to live. Whatever. That, go ahead, but God's not going to bless that. I'll tell you what God blesses. He blesses humility. And he blesses brokenness. And um, if God can get us where he wants us to be, he can revive our hearts. And we need that. I need that. And I'm praying for that. I'm praying it for my own life. You may be thinking, well, I'm praying for your life too. But I'm praying it for all of us. I want God to work. Amen? And the, and the singing is good, and the preaching is good, and all that stuff is good. But if, but if our heart does not see ourselves the way we are and see God the way He is, and every once in a while have a sense of true remorse over the fact that I am not, I am not everything I know that God wants me to be. If we don't have that every once in a while... We're missing out on something God has for us. I believe that. So the heart, this, here's the, this is the lesson, the heart that God revives. And I want my heart to be in a place that God... You say, well, don't you think God is powerful enough that he could, he could just, you know, revive you? Sure he could, but... God lives by principles. God has principles and promises in his word. And if the seed is going out and there's four different kinds of soil, the wayside, the, the rocky soil, the cluttered briars and thorns soil, or the good soil, and that seed's going out, I want, I want my heart to be the good soil. Don't you? Amen. Let's bow our heads together tonight for prayer. I want to encourage you tonight to just think about this. Think about your own life. Think about your own spiritual condition, your own heart. If God revives the heart of the humble, the spirit of the humble, the heart of the contrite person, the broken person, if God revives those kind of hearts, is that the kind of heart that I have before God?